So, what better time to discuss a comic strip strip about cats, squirrels, robots, stuffed animals, and so on. This is the Reading in the Time of Monsters podcast. This is the ninth episode. I am your host, Peter, and I'm here with my friend, writer, fellow socialist organizer, John Perich. What up, what up, what up? Yes, what is up indeed. And what is up, we are going to talk about uh, what I would say is pretty inarguably the greatest work of art to come out of the webcomic boom of the first decade or two of the 21st century, which is, if anything, is kind of damning it with faint praise. Though I do hear that uh, uh, Kill Six Billion Demons also deserves some consideration in that space. I haven't read it yet, but perhaps yeah. one of these days I will. People, uh, keep, people keep name-checking Homestuck, too, but I, I don't even know how or when or whether to get into that one. It has staying power, anyway. Yeah, I think with Homestuck, it really does strike me that the appeal is more uh, specific and fandom-based. And it's hard to even harder that we'll talk about the challenges of getting into Akewood. Oh, I, I gave mm-hmm. up what it is. Ah, yeah, now you know. <laughs> um, in any event, we, we have to do the brief self crit. Uh, it isn't an episode of Reading in the Time of Monsters without self crit. Uh, last episode, I think, went pretty okay. Uh, I probably could have used more about how uh, Harris's Palo Alto was good, what specifically it did well because I did spend roughly the last third of it talking about its ending, which I don't think was all that good. Uh, but it is a good book, and you should read it if you're into history. Uh, now, part of the reason why I might have had a somewhat unbalanced script for that is because initially I was going to pair that discussion uh, with the discussion of the other great cultural work set in Palo Alto, namely Akewood the webcomic, uh, which we are discussing today. Akewood is modeled after Palo Alto pretty explicitly. You could see maps uh, in at least one episode of Akewood that it, it's clearly based off of Palo Alto, complete with there being an East Akewood, like there's an East Palo Alto, uh, a university with a different name, but clearly where Stanford would be. Uh, and I thought about trying to discuss the sense of place of this in many respects kind of uh, uh, Paul Walter is seen as being kind of placeless, just this sub- anonymous suburban space, but clearly both Malcolm Harris and Chris Onstad, the artist and author of Akewood thought differently, but I didn't really have time for that. I want to get something out because I'd been so long between podcasts and I still wasn't quite sure how to pair them. Uh, so we're talking about Akewood. Brief introduction to what it is, uh, written by humorist Chris Onstad, who moved to the, the Palo Alto area for college. He went to Stanford, helped edit the Stanford Chopperall, a sort of humor magazine. And it ran from September 2001, interesting time to have a podcast, uh, to start a webcomic. And ran pretty consistently until about 2010 or so at which point it started to update less consistently there would be long hiatuses including one that ran from 2016 until uh, about a month and a half 
before this recording when Chris Onsad announced he would once again start producing Akewood, uh, this time via, I believe it's Patreon he's on. Um, yes, I, I signed up. Yeah, uh, pretty much, pretty much the first day. Shortly, yeah, shortly before everyone I knew sent me the Patreon link. Huh. And said, hey, John, yeah, sounds back on Patreon. It's like, yes, yep. yes, I, I, I signed up right away too, but I get confused between the various things I have to sign on for things for, um, different people's content plays. Uh, so what is Akewood? What's it about? It's difficult to explain i argue that it's even harder to explain the appeal though john might disagree with me essentially it's a slice of life comic that takes place largely in akewood the titular city modeled after palo alto a lot of strong sense of place that we can talk about a little further down it has a wide cast of characters uh with an emphasis on about a half dozen of them that are, and these characters are all not very few. The only human character you really see is Chris Onstad himself occasionally. Uh, but you get these, these little cartoon characters. Many of them are cats. Some of them are stuffed animals. Some of them are squirrels. Some of them are robots and so on. Uh, it's not really a surprise to see any kind of being, uh, turn up as an Akewood character. At first, in around 2001-2002, a lot of the stories were about the difficulty of being one of these types of animals or, or creatures in a world uh, dominated by humans, right? The idea was that they were the stuffed animals and cats that lived around Chris Onstad's house in Palo Alto, and they had to uh, create their own little underground life. Uh, those strips are pretty funny. They're they're definitely an important part of the Aquid canon, but I would argue that the uh, Aquid kind of picked up in subsequent years when there was less attention paid to the idea of a counter society of small creatures, and more when it became more or less a, a somewhat surreal slice of life about a society like contemporary society, but. Uh, a little, a little different, a little offbeat. There, they Onstad has had numerous plot lines, and we'll talk some about our favorite plots. Uh, there's one-offs, uh, parodies of various kinds. It's hard to explain, so it's it's relatively easy to explain that, but it's a little hard to explain the appeal, right? Why should uh, you read Aquid? Why does Aquid have the devoted fan following it has? That after uh, you know, six years, uh, Onstad can come back and everybody's emailing the likes of John and myself to tell them to uh, go pay Chris Onstad money. Uh, so what is it? What is it about Aquid? John, do you want to give your elevator pitch about what Aquid is and why it's great? Sure. I mean, obviously the, the plot details and rough setting sketch is, you, you laid out is, is accurate and I'd say pretty thorough. The appeal of it draws on whether you're into a sort of contemporary, absurdist, frequently vulgar, mm. but not gratuitously so, sense of humor mm -hmm. that is set and sort of, that is seated in 
and this is jumping ahead a little in some things we plan to talk about, uh, middle American consumer culture. Mm. It's it's treating the, I think a lot of it is treating the artifacts of middle American consumer culture or Americana more broadly. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's a hell of a topic to wrestle with. Mm. As the sort of weird totems that they are rather than just uh, facts of life things we take for granted things we see every day mm. the it appealed to me because i i think there is a contemporary and and slightly preceding analog as far as comic strips go in uh, bill griffith's zippy the pinhead mm. bill griffith was a is a sort of like underground comic artist who kind of broke into the mainstream i don't know if i don't know if zippy the pinhead is still zippy the pinhead distinct from ziggy who was like the one panel strip of just like a weird rotund figure who would make some sort of like it's a living type mm. punchline at the bottom page it's not ziggy zippy the pinhead he was he, he dressed in this kind of weird multicolored moo and mm. made a lot of weird pop cultural references and had little absurd adventures with a recurring cast of characters some of whom were much more serious than him some of whom were much more silly than he was uh deeply deeply absurd rarely written in the form of like setup setup punchline that you'd recognize from comic strips i i i've explained to people like if you liked zippy the pinhead which was a weird taste growing up in like the 80s and 90s you would get at least the the pacing if not the specific references and style of Apewood. it's very similar in that way yeah it's good to come up with a comparison i have a certain amount of difficulty with that the best i could come up with are 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 probably even more obscure than Apewood, um which would be like the the, the novels of charles portis but um leaving that aside i, I do think that's a pretty good comparison uh, especially trying to get a new person used to the idea of the pacing and the uh, structure of Akewood takes some doing because, like you say, it's very rare to have kind of set up, set up punchline. Mm -hmm. um, the the humor is more absurdist. Sometimes it takes a couple of issues to stretch out. So I guess my the closest I have to kind of an elevator pitch for Akewood, uh, why it's good and important uh i agree with the consumerism point the totemism point we'll talk about that later on in this podcast uh it's very heavily character driven uh you get to know these characters and onstad also sketches them out very deftly from the beginning so it's not like uh some characters in some plot driven episodic works where you're expected to care about a kind of boring, poorly sketched character until such a point as they develop plot that makes them interesting to you. The plot is never enough to uh, make an Aquid character interesting, if that's the only thing you're into, but they're so deftly sketched, they each have their own voice that's unique from the beginning. Uh, uh, for a long time, Onstad was maintaining blogs, in the voice of about a dozen of his different characters uh, at kind of the height of his productivity in the sort of mid to late aughts. 
uh, and I would say, so character and language are what I would emphasize in that he comes up with these ways of for characters to say things that are just so unique and so memorable and vivid. Uh, I've been reading Akewood off and on, but pretty consistently since probably 2005, 2006 or so. And uh, sometimes I worry that I use, I, I know for a fact I use uh, phrases picked up from Akewood without thinking about it. Yeah. And well, I even worry. Not just, even not just phrases, but like particular ways of constructing sentences yes. that Ray or Roast Beef might, might use. Yeah. So it might be good to at least bring up a few of these characters uh, before, because I would ultimately say that bring up the talk about the characters is probably more important than talking about individual plot lines. But we could do those too. Uh, so, do you have a do you have a favorite character that you would want to start with? Well, th this this sort of tags back into the elevator pitch that, that you mentioned before, and also sort of a favorite favorite joke or favorite favorite series. Like whenever. Whenever have I've had the opportunity to recommend Akewood to someone, I've always said start with May two thousand four. Okay, because that's if if you I, I pulled this up just to refresh myself. That's the isosceles lock comic strip. <laughs> okay, and, and like so, all of May two thousand four. That's like between twenty and maybe twenty five entries. There's no particular plot line there in the middle of, but it's a good breadth of characters and situations. And you re you can bang through those twenty to twenty five in about fifteen minutes thirty if you're really if you're really taking your time, and you'll get a sense of what Akewood is about, what Onstat's language is, what the characters are, and if after if after like May two thousand four the entire month if you don't dig it by then 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 you're probably not going to at any point. Mm. Yeah, I'm looking at it now, and yeah, I I think that's. There's some real bangers in here, as the, as the kids now say, and pretty representative of the humor and the language, like you're saying. Like, I can only see, like, one or two uh, comics in here that refer back to any other plot line. Like, there's uh, one of the characters, it was a bit of a, uh, a consistent joke, I think into two, definitely into 2008 and possibly into 2012, where one of the characters who's this kind of innocent little child who's a stuffed otter named Philippe runs for president every four years. And it's this funny, cute little thing. And there's a reference to it there because 2004 is an election year. You also get the start of a plot line involving one of the main characters, uncles, who's a kind of stereotyped uh, Southern dandy. Uh, gets involved in his life and gets him into a plot but for the most part yeah it's just it's it's the Akewood idea of jokes so yeah looking at march 2000 uh sorry may 2004 i i, I think i second that suggestion if you want to take kind of a core sample yeah um so the characters that we get there uh that very first uh episode you talked about with the isosceles triangle um I believe that's between arguably the two main characters of the strip, Roast Beef and Ray. Right. Two of the two of the most identified characters of Akewood who, 
as the purists will, will note, will, were not two of the first introduced. Correct. It's, it's many, many strips before we even get a glimpse of the cats. And I think at, even at that point, Ray and Roast Beef are sort of in the background. Mm-hmm. But you have Ray, who is, I guess, what you would consider more the type A personality, a, a person, uh, very a cat very obsessed with image and attitude, and who also, through various complicated backstories, is independently and insanely wealthy, mm-hmm. which... Uh, when we talk about consumerism, we talk. I can talk a little more about that. And his his best friend since childhood and neighbor, roast beef Kazanzakis, who it's not clear what exactly his profession is, although it's implied, if never stated explicitly, that he does some work in tech. He at least has had a tech job at some point, mm-hmm. and some familiarity with that. Also, similar you know, cultural language, more of an intellectual than Ray, and also famously anxious, if not outright, you know, outright depressed. Mm. Yeah, these two kind of form, uh, almost uh, in some cases, something like a Holmes and Watson pair, almost, uh, or, or, or a Jeeves and Wooster, but not quite, because Ray... Uh, for all that he's confident and sure of himself and moves forward with things, doesn't always, he's not stupid, but he doesn't always think that hard about yeah. what he does. He's, uh, he, he gets himself into situations. Roast beef for all of these anxious, anxious and depressed also has a kind of inner strength to him that leads him to gut through situations that other people uh, wouldn't necessarily be able to get through and uh is, is also you know more thoughtful he 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 pays the water bill you know um yeah he's 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 very big on responsive on being grimly responsible where ray uh makes every mistake you can pretty much but you know just literally winds up slipping on money uh yes. So, so sorry. Go ahead, John. Were you gonna say something? No, yeah. I mean, that's that's essentially the heart of it. He he still he still comes out ahead in spite of himself. Uh, yeah. He still comes together despite himself. Yeah. Um, I think there's uh so other characters. Arguably, the third main character would be Theodore, uh, who was one of the original characters before the cats were introduced. Theodore might be the closest to an everyman. Uh, but every man is kind of a passive aggressive uh uh somewhat lazy uh also in his way obsessed with consumer products bear he's has a good kind of indie tastes if you will not just in music but also in food aesthetics and so on but can never quite get his life together he blows a lot of opportunities in various amusing ways. Um, what other characters do you think we should let everyone know about in order to go forward with an Aquid discussion? I think I think the other key characters you have to tap into are Philippe, who you mentioned mm. before, who's, as you said, sort of the the naive, a a perpetually five year I think five year old yes. otter, who still fairly articulate for his age, but. <laughs> you know, comes at things with the amusing, precocious innocence of a child and is, mm-hmm. is a interesting viewpoint uh, oftentimes in that regard. 
And if there's anything of a mentor character, I'd say Cornelius Bear, mm-hmm. who it, you know, occasionally when when a strip has to I, I wouldn't say a moral, but have a summing up to it, Cornelius will usually be the one delivering the the definitive verdict if if not roast beef. Yeah, and you and despite all this, you still see both of them in situations of duress and of getting things wrong. You don't get yeah. really any major character in Akewood who doesn't get things wrong, with one possible exception that we'll talk about in the piece on Akewood and gender. Um, but uh, yeah, so those are important characters, uh, but there's so many. Lyle, the uh, hard-drinking, hard-partying, alcoholic-stuffed tiger, who's, he's seen it all, he's an old metalhead type. Yeah, the, the crust uh, punk. Yeah, old crust punk, old metalhead, uh, and he's 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 not going to change his ways. I'm my, probably my two favorite kind of mid-rank characters, you don't see them all the time, but you see them often enough, are two of the robots. There's kind of a little crew of robots who come in and out. I'm a particular fan of Vlad, who uh, is a Slavic robot and uh, proclaims himself to be the king of makeouts. Uh, he's he's a party dude, uh, not always a successful one. And uh, the robot Chucklebot, whose job, whose whose role in life is uh, to make you chuckle, but sometimes the chuckles they're a little rough. Uh, do you, do you have uh, any sort of favorite like minor characters you want to shout out? Uh, yeah, uh, probably the third of the three robots, Liebot. Ah, yes, is, is one of my perpetual favorites, just because he's, I, I mean, he he's one of the few who wears his motivation so explicitly. Like he's mm-hmm. he's clearly just about pulling one over on people. It's in his name, mm-hmm. and also there's there's an early there's an early strip where he's telling Philippe a story and it, it goes in a weird place. And he ends up by saying the end, no moral, <laughs> which is one of the many onstat phrases that's lodged itself in my vocabulary. Since. Yes. Yes. I do that all the, yeah. Uh, all the time. The, the end, no moral. Um, yeah. So, so if you want the various, we, we've been around the Equid community long enough to have heard a fair amount of discourse among people including the perennial question of how to introduce people to Akewood. I do think that John's suggestion of uh, starting with May 2004 as like a core sample makes sense, but Akewood also does have plot lines and the plot lines uh, are for some people, a big part of the juice of Akewood. Uh, I've certainly enjoyed a fair few. The one that gets the most attention is probably the great outdoor fight which mm-hmm. I believe that was 2006. Um, but uh, uh, the Great Outdoor Fight, sort of um, roughly like it sounds, is a uh, sporting event in the world of Akewood. And yes, this takes place January 11, 2006 is the start of the plot line. The Great Outdoor Fight is a international competition that takes place somewhere in interior California at a place called the Acres, a small open lot where 3,000 men enter every year and have basically a giant no-holds-barred battle royale uh, until only one man is left standing. 
Uh, Ray, the optimist, rich kid character, finds out that his father was a legendary winner of the great outdoor fight, and this it's a we find out that the dad wasn't around much in his in his life, and he decides it's his destiny to win the great outdoor fight. Roast beef, long term fan of the great outdoor fight, a kind of scholar of the fight, helps him, and we see this whole cast of unusual characters right you don't want to think of it as being similar to mma competition right these are or you could think of it as the vibe is being almost a little bit like the early ufc fights where just these random oddballs who probably don't fit in very well with the rest of society are the kind of people who wind up fighting in the great outdoor fight uh it's it's as surreal and absurdist as the rest of akewood um for instance, to, to give you an idea of this, uh, we, we keep on talking about the absurdism. The great outdoor fight plot begins when another character that we should probably bring up, Todd the Squirrel, who is just a uh, a rascal, uh, a, a druggy uh, miscreant who they just let be around for some reason, despite the fact he's always starting trouble and is, you know, about a quarter of the size of everyone else. Uh, Ray, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Todd, uh, busts into a fancy party that Ray is throwing and demands that Ray give him six million dollars because Todd wants to start a company, uh, for uh, creating things like truck balls. But yeah. instead of being truck balls, they're they're a, they're a wiener, they're a dick on your car, uh. Because, you know, you, obviously you have to take it to the next place. So that's a, a, a mild sample of the absurdism yeah. of Akewood. Uh, the great, they, they, they very quickly they very quickly get away from, from that storyline, from, the, yes. from the, the, the truck, the truck nuts. And of course, the, the eventual heightening of that, the, the chat sack for your. For yes, your for your phone. Nuts for your phone. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, Akewood, Akewood plots often take these hard left turns. They start out being about one thing and then turn out to be something about, turn out to be about something else altogether. The great outdoor fight plot is great. It's definitely well worth reading. I don't think it's very representative, Akewood, even of the plot lines. Uh, so it is, it, it could arguably be a bit of a bait and switch if you try to get people to start with the great outdoor fight. Right, so they read that and they think it's going to be these big epic plots, and then you're you're only going to get a certain amount of that. Yeah. Uh, do Do you have any plot lines uh, you particularly want to shout out? So, I'm, obviously, I I could and probably will end up talking more about the great outdoor fight when we get into the thematic die later. The uh, one of one of my one of my favorites, and again, one that I think is a good intro to the sort of the sort of other arcs. Like once you've got through May 2004 and you want to dive a little deeper into the characters and their situations, is the the road trip summer. Mm. It begins with roast beef give or Ray giving roast beef a 1965 Ford Galaxy, mm. and you know them just touring around. You know just tearing around uh, middle California for, for a couple strips. It's, you know, it's got an arc. It doesn't 
doesn't have much of you know as as Liebot would say the end no moral but yeah. it introduce it introduces the character it has lots of funny situations uh, it also touches a little in the in the consumer culture aspect that I keep keep hinting at but not but not diving yeah th into. let's let's talk about the consumer I, I I think we might as well make that dive so sure. what is how do you see Akewood as kind of dealing with what, what does consumer culture do for Akewood or vice versa what's what, sure. what's what's the deal here so when when I I'm, I'm probably using a sort of iconoclastic interpretation when I talk about consumer culture as expressed and explored by Akewood I mean people who use mass-produced products or services or experiences as cultural markers and signifiers as class signifiers uh, in a in the sort of uniquely mid 20th mid to late 20th century american fashion so the the road trip storyline is a good example of that because i i have i have the strip up here and it, it begins with ray giving roast beef you know you know this classic car the 1965 ford galaxy and, and the final final panel of that first strip is roast beef sitting behind the wheel sort of uh, saying to himself oh man the car from peel out summer <laughs> and there, there is no movie called Peel Out Summer, <laughs> but just the way he delivers it, you would, you could, if you think back to like that era of 80s road trip movies or teen sex comedies, you could kind of believe that there was like, yeah, you, know, you can almost envision like the, the VHS cover of this 1981 movie called Peel Out Summer. It's about right. teenage boys on the brink of manhood touring around a 65 Ford Galaxy. And <laughs> Like it, the, this car is meaningful to roast beef because it's the car from a movie he likes. That that particular identification. And that's not the only example. There's the Volvo of despair that roast mm. beef gets trapped in one time, or when Ray lures roast beef back from the moon by making a mock-up of the bar from Cheers, <laughs> or and I think this is from the May two thousand four section when, or actually no, it predates that. Uh, when when Ray invites roast beef over for a Jack and Diane party, which is just oh, yeah. a party with beer and nachos, but there's a blacked out blacked out corner of the room where you can put on white gloves and imitate the the hand claps from the John Cougar Mellencamp Jack and Diane video, yeah. or you know countless examples like that. Uh, I, I I think it it's most it's heightened to its most absurd element in the character of Ray mm. because. You have a character who, as we said, stumbles into a vast fortune through no effort of his own. No skill, will, barely even luck is involved. So he's just all of a sudden stupefyingly rich and doesn't know what to do with it. So it leads to him buying things like 34 Sony iBoats. Like if you remember <laughs> the Sony iBoat talk. Yeah. Like shortly after he gets rich ray you know has a party and invites a friend over and it's, he has like 34 of these like why 34 because <laughs> he can afford 34 of them and why not or um and this is another one of my favorite storylines when uh, you know a as a b plot to philippe getting lost on a on a wilderness adventure and mm. trapped at a at a dump Ray just wakes up late one afternoon, sits down at eBay and types in, what's the coolest thing you've got? And suddenly <laughs> he's ushered into like the eBay Platinum Reserve. Yeah. And it's like, oh yes, you 
by by wanting the coolest possible thing, you've proven that you're a person of of discretion and taste. So here, <laughs> now you can bid on our secret stuff, like uh, like the head of Keith Moon or the yeah. the chopper from Airwolf. Just the largest laser. <laughs> the biggest yeah. Laser. yeah. So just that that idea of you know just a a sort of free floating want mm. that is fulfilled by products that are marketed to you rather than a sort of introverted consideration of one's soul and like i i I think between the two of us you know as most people do we have various wishes or fantasies like if i suddenly came into a million dollars what would i do would i like build up my book collection or take a tour of the world or you know put money away for my my kids college or something like that things that arise from our values and circumstances ray just seems to want whatever is marketed at him Mm. and suddenly has the money to do it so it's that exploration that sort of shines a light on the absurdity of things like chain restaurants mass-produced cars suburban Mm. strip malls etc yeah it's it's not exactly a searing critique of consumer capitalism but in a way it almost uh it it does get to the absurdity of it like you say almost in this kind of roundabout and gentler way it's and it's worth saying that onstad himself um my understanding of what he's talked about from his biography is that you know he went to stanford he it was the first internet boom the dot-com bubble he was employed as he put it making two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year for about 12 weeks and then was out on his ass. I I understand he did copywriting work uh, along with whatever else he did while he was uh, event uh, until he eventually made Aquid his full time job. Uh, he is a man who has very particular tastes. Uh, he's a foodie. He's uh, a man interested in various commodities and what they and brands and what they. Uh, both actually do and what they're purported to do right i think he has a reasonably good sense of these things despite also being kind of a believer in them right because i think people from our corner of things john tend to assume that anyone who takes brands seriously has to be a bit of a or a total dummy right yeah Um, it's i think i think the common sort of the shop-worn critique is that you know brands and mass culture are the secular religion right. of the 20th and early 21st century and i think onstat i onstat's reaction to that would be like yes it's the secular religion yes it's, it's worth you know it, it it creates a sense of community there right. are sacred aspects and there are silly aspects and there are yes. some you know ugly aspects that get swept under the rug it's a secular religion let's let's talk about it as if it's the institution that it is right and he sees how ripe for humor it all is right and not not entirely at the expense of people who like it just in general you know i yeah. think it was i think it might have been maybe it was flyan o'brien in one of his essays who said machines are inherently comic right any given machine because all it is is this thing that can only do a few things 
Yeah. Right. It's not, it's not a person that can, it, it doesn't have free will. It can break down. And then all of a sudden it's a broken machine. And, and what's that? That's, that's ridiculous. Um, and brands are kind of like that. Consumer goods are like that. I don't think it's entirely a coincidence that cars play such a prominent role. Among other things, this takes place in California, uh, suburban California. So there's really no other way to get around. You yeah. do get some references to bus travel, uh, one character uh, who the the third of the cats, right? When you when we int- we get introduced to the cats for the first time, there's three of them. It's Ray, Roast Beef, and Pat. Mm-hmm. Pat is the one we get to know the least, but we do get to know him a fair amount. Pat is an asshole, <laughs> and he's a very specifically a Bay Area type of asshole in that he is a superior political type. He is a vegan environmentalist. Uh, very big on uh, policing the lifestyles of others in this very purely negative sense. There's a, yeah. you don't get the, you don't get the sense that he takes any joy in nature or joy in creating a new type of community, which you get from environmentalists a lot of the time. He just, he is just miserable and he wants other people to be miserable. And uh, he does have uh, a weird big car at various points due to plot things but he talks about going around town in a uh, and this is i think this is a copywriter in onstad uh a gravity sensible skitter cart uh <laughs> and you have to think about what that is because you don't see it he just talks about it um so transportation you know the the machines that we have around us reflect the realities that we live in and the contradictions in them and the humor in them yeah, because the th- contradictions are inherently kind of funny. Like they yeah. might also be tragic, but most I mean, things. Yeah, go it's ahead. Ab- it's absurdity, and like, yes. like in the my my go-to take on humor has always been like you only hear the phrase "that's absurd" in two tones, either comically, like someone laughing at something that's absurd, or disparagingly, like that's yeah. absurd. <laughs> and my take has always been it's the same type of absurdity it's the same reaction both times you're just you're just coming at it with different attitude depending mm. on whether you feel threatened by it or whether you can whether you can approach it at arm's length but it's it's the same level of absurdity and that same absurdity can be you know horrifying in other works and there's right. you know a library full of literature about the horrors of californian suburbia but it can also be it can also be funny if you approach it from a safer move and making the protagonists uh, cats and stuffed right. animals and fictional robots it lets us handle it with kid gloves. Yeah, yeah, you know because I think of a of a writer who deals with consumer culture and brands, and right away the first thing that hops into my head is Brett Easton Ellis. <laughs> who also yeah. a Californian, uh, but uh, an Angeleno, uh, completely different attitude. Oh, yeah. um, none of the self-seriousness uh, or the uh, edginess or uh, more, or really, you know, and, and I'm, I'm reading a lot of critics from the 90s for, for another project I'm doing. And uh, the point that they make, and I, uh, the ones who are more actually sympathetic to Ellis and some of the other kind of literary Brat Pack writers, but especially Ellis, is that he actually was qu- something of a moralist. 
he has a vision of how things should be and how people should behave. Uh, and it's not like Patrick Bateman, right? When he's yeah. he's talking completely in brands, uh, Ellis doesn't think that's a good way to be. It might actually be roughly similar to how Ellis thought at the time and might think now, because he certainly seems to be a guy who pays attention to like having uh, a particular aesthetic that has been marketed to and that he could... Uh, select products on that basis. Uh, I'm sure he probably could ID uh, the the clothing makes of a lot of the people he hangs out with, but he sees that and sees himself, his own literature and th- that of those around him as a uh, cultural, uh, a, a sign of cultural decline. Yeah. Um, which occasionally in his darker moods, Onstad uh, toys with, less about, you know, brands and the and the stuff you can own though he does make gentle fun of that especially in the culinary space mm-hmm. uh he clearly takes a great joy out of cooking and of owning uh good kitchenware and even kitchen gadgets but he also kind of sees that there's a certain degree of ridiculousness to it um you know there's a whole plot line one of the relatively late plot lines where ray gets into business with william sonoma by uh convincing the people in charge of you know the the great cookware company that what they really need is lesbian erotica uh in in their catalogs yeah um but he he, due to a number of again these kind of sharp left turns uh that aquid plots often take and more of them the longer they go he winds up in a uh lesbian erotica freestyle writing battle with the the ancient founder of william sonoma said to be like 102 years old but they're both dressed up in elephant costumes to anonymize them because you know you don't and and there's just a whole crowd of hooting lesbians that they're performing for uh so that's the kind of situation you could get into as a result of these things um occasionally he's he's more like he'll talk about reality tv or stuff like that as signs of cultural decadence but he doesn't, he is not a guy with a particular program, I don't think. I don't think he's trying to sell us on a particular political idea or, or way of life, necessarily. No, no, absolutely not. At least not in the context of, of the strip. Yeah. Um, so one of the, some of the themes that I sort of wanted to talk about, um, along with the commodity slash consumerism thing, is... Uh, masculinity and depression. Um, so Akewood is written by a man. Uh, the vast majority of characters are male. Uh, they're, most of the women characters that you saw were distinctly side characters until the introduction of a character named Molly, who became Roast Beef's girlfriend and eventually wife. This has been a subject of uh, criticism for Akewood, mm-hmm. uh, it, including from other webcomic artists. Uh, I would actually say, in many respects, uh, it's less of a problem that there's not that many women characters, and more of a problem that Onstad's main woman character is doesn't have that much of a character. Right, she literally, yeah. she, Roast Beef literally finds her in heaven. For many parts of the strip, uh, death in the afterlife, 
uh, is kind of a revolving door, right? Mm -hmm. Characters, particularly Rose Beef, die multiple times and go to different areas of the afterlife, both heaven and hell, uh, and come back uh, pretty easily. And in one of his stints in heaven, he meets Molly, a 17th century Welsh woman who still has, you know, most of the ideas of a, you know, early 21st century American woman. And she, he brings her down from heaven with him. Heaven, it's worth noting, is, you know, it, it's cool and all, but it's not really that great. It's yeah. it's kind of like a college dorm. Um, yeah, a, a, it's a... a, a it's a scene. I mean, at one of, like, at, at one of Rosebeef's visits to heaven, it does actually burn down between, yeah. like, his first and second or second and third visit. Mm -hmm. like, it, like, it's just, you know, a club that that can happen to. Like, ah, right. yeah, there was a fire. Sorry, it burned down. Yeah, and hell isn't all that bad. Um, but uh, so Molly comes down from heaven and is basically Roast Beef's support system. Um, mm -hmm. Roast Beef goes through some of his most severe depression episodes. While Molly is there, there's breakups. Uh, they get back together. Uh, but Molly is basically just sort of a uh, happy-go-lucky. Uh, occasionally, she gets upset with Beef. She she sort of represents not quite an intrusion, but an injection of like feminine like mm -hmm. domesticity and common sense, supposedly, yeah. uh, into the world of Aquid. And I think that's more the problem mm -hmm. uh, of of Aikwood and the representation of women. I don't think, and you might disagree with this, but I don't think it's an obligation of writers to depict uh, any given demographic. But I do think if you're going to depict them, you should try to do uh, a better job, I guess. Yeah. Um, uh, because the, I uh, go ahead. The fair thing to say is it's it's a limitation of the storyline. Yes. I, I, I think in some, it, 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 it is absolutely a limitation. The character of Molly is almost entirely an adjunct of Rose Beef, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. just a complement to the incomplete parts of his personality. And that's a, that's a fair criticism. And I think if you pointed that out to Onstad, it probably has been at some points over the last oh, sure. 15 years, he he probably wouldn't dispute it. He's struck me, if nothing else, as someone with a accurate and somewhat self-deprecating view of his own work, which mm -hmm. is one of the many things I respect about him. Oh, yeah. I think, if if anything, it's a function of Onstat staying in one lane or staying in mm -hmm. one particular lane, and that lane being a sort of explicit analysis of how masculinity is performed particularly in a in a consumer culture in a middle class commodity culture in america but also just you know meditations on masculinity like what does it mean to be a man what does right. it mean to be a father what does it mean to be a son what does it mean to you know does how how do men relate to each other yeah and you know we can talk about this a bit this is also where we can segue back into the great outdoor fight mm -hmm. storyline because there's there's a lot to say there but onstat frequently revisits this subject of you know what products and consumable rituals do men use to relate to each other as men to yeah. perform masculinity to broadcast their masculinity to the world 
the great outdoor fight is probably the biggest example of that because it's it's literally ray one of the protagonists learns that his father entered the great outdoor fight you know 20 years ago under a uh, under a nom de plume and based on that resolves to enter the fight himself and goes along with his his best friend roast beef and discovers you know things about himself things about his friend what it means to be a man etc uh just fantastic fantastic little storyline but that whole that whole arc is is very tied up in what what does it mean what does it mean to be a man how does it how do we relate to other men what are the rituals and language and attitudes we use so to get back to the original point because onstat is so expressly and intimately focused on the performance of masculinity it is sort of a blind spot mm. in his vision to you know the, to to develop three-dimensional female characters yeah it's it's a limitation uh, i mean we can we can definitely say it, it excludes an audience that isn't interested in meditating deeply on masculinity mm-hmm. which to be fair I, I mean masculinity is sort of omnipresent in a sure. patriarchy i can get i can get why you wouldn't want to spend more time with it if you didn't have to it's it as someone who discovered Akewood in his early 20s and you know was figuring out what it means to be a man what it means to have serious friendships and, and romantic partnerships it was it was interesting to to you know sit down and meditate with that through a fictional perspective yeah, I think that's right. And I particularly think that Onstad, wherever he talks about manhood, is also talking about depression, anxiety, fear, loneliness. Um, yeah. That he does whatever he thinks. Uh, and, and again, he's he's less of a, a political uh, writer than, say, uh, we might think would be normal for somebody from say the millennial generation you know it's mm-hmm. on sad's older more of a gen xer i don't want to put too many chips on that as definitional but i do think it plays a part mm-hmm. he uh whatever it is he's saying about masculinity it's not that it's so great uh it is something that all of the male characters one way or another live with uh you don't for instance have gender queer or trans characters um and again, I don't think that's necessarily an issue. Not every work has to have uh, ha- has to represent the whole world. Yeah. What I think what Aquid does, though, is it focuses on. It's not so much that it, that it's like a harrowing examination of the costs of masculinity. It's a thoughtful and funny and non uh, dogmatic non. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Preaching, I guess. Uh, yeah. Uh, non-proselytizing look at various ways of that r- pretty recognizable archetypes for all that the absurd situations they get into and all that they're, you know, silly little animal creatures that these pretty familiar archetypes of contemporary manhood get involved in and how they try to negotiate their own lives and meaning uh, and all of that in a very unself-serious way that still manages to resonate emotionally Uh, it it treats it treats masculinity as a real institution not just an mm -hmm. abstract idea as a as a real set of rituals that could be performed as 
as almost a place you can go to. And in the case of the great outdoor fight, literally a place you can yes. go to. Like this is this is where the men converge to prove their right. prove their manhood. Yeah, and it's never said explicitly, but you you don't see any women uh right. at the great outdoor fight. They don't say that they have to exclude them. They're just not there. Yeah. Uh it, when when Ray's mother is introducing the subject of the fight. She says, oh, one year your father took me on his motorcycle out to Bakersfield, and he won the great outdoor fight. Uh, so I guess there, there, there might be women in the stands, uh, but that also yeah. might just have been Ray's dad, you know, being rebellious. Uh, because yeah, he's, he's a bit of a... He's a bit of a... Bringing, yeah, just bringing his, bringing his lady with him. I, yeah. I, I, was, I was thinking about masculinity. Like, every, every male character... There is no male character in the strip who is completely confident and unexamined in their performance of masculinity mm. except perhaps cornelius bear and even mm. he occasionally has moments of of doubt or missteps and uh ray's dad ram uh, yes ray's dad ray's dad is is cartoonishly titanic in his mm. masculinity just just absolutely unshakable and untouchable in right the, in the classic cultural tradition of the the absent father so to speak. yes like you, you can't you can't relate to them as a human being you project all of your desires and insecurities onto them and i guess sort of the nightmare scenario is like all of those turn out to be true it's like oh my dad wasn't just a tough guy he literally won a fight against three thousand men yeah uh and he's I, literally like a cultural icon of like the dirtier parts of the 70s yeah he he drives a car with a bumper sticker that reads i kick men's asses and i vote <laughs> that's <laughs> such is, a good sticker uh, it's just a it's just such a it's just such a bizarre and fantastic sentiment to evoke like you if you saw that on a car you'd be like well i i, I don't know what to do about this guy. yeah I, I don't know how to relate to him we should get uh we should get one of those for sensei yeah, um, no, that'd be <laughs> right. Yeah, that'd be uh, a... It's an idea. We'll, we'll workshop it. Um, but yeah, uh, so roast beef is the most clearly depressed character. He is also someone with certain ideas about masculinity, mm. many of which revolve around like kind of grim responsibility. Right, yeah. his father's not in the picture either. Mm. Uh, in in one strip, we see uh, you know maybe 12 year old roast beef here his mother shoot his father to death he had come home from prison uh started slapping the old lady around that's how uh and that's how that story ended uh so he's known a lot of bad men including for instance his brother who's a con who's like a low-level con artist yeah. and just generally uh kind of a pest uh so he he takes it very seriously to be a uh, a man who deals with responsibilities and never makes himself a burden on others. Yeah. Uh, at one point, he says he envisions his future as being defined by extreme silence. Um, and, and that always kind of rings out to me. Uh, and I think that Ray. So for all that Ray is the big party guy, he's he's the alpha, he's this, he's that, he wins a great outdoor fight. Mm-hmm. He does create a almost entirely male world around him. His main love interest 
is a uh, loud, uh, honestly, one of my favorite female characters in the strip. I know it's kind of damning with faint praise, but Tina, his yeah. girlfriend who gets yeah. sick of him and his shit many times, despite uh, being in many respects kind of similar to Ray in terms of being a sort of uh, shallow, uh, materialistic, uh, loudmouth, but uh, she's a woman and not insanely wealthy for no reason. So uh, the the world does not favor her as much as it favors him. But yeah. beyond a little bit with Tina, you don't really see him date. There's even a few uh, minor plot lines about his not dating. Uh, occasionally he alludes to hiring sex workers, but you don't really see much of that. But what he does do is he has several what you could call plot lines in the strip are just parties. They're yeah. just parties that usually Ray sometimes Theodore throws. They invite all their friends, all the characters from the strip show up and they interact in various ways. And those are some of my favorite Akewoods uh, are just those interactions at the parties because, I mean, they have all the Akewood stuff. They have the characters, they have the, the humor, the dialogue, you know, uh, the love letter to the English language that is Akewood, mm-hmm. as uh, Chris Onstad has ch- tongue-in-cheek called it, but it really is. But you also have just this weird kind of, s- this dark utopia of, uh, a dark, dark's not the right word for it, but uh, a kind of a depressed utopia of dudes, yeah. of yeah, when there aren't women around, you don't really have to modify your behavior as much. So it helps explain why people like Todd and Lyle, who uh, routinely steal uh, from other people and uh, pass out in their own vomit and do other gross behaviors, or for that matter, Pat, who's uh, mm-hmm. who's deeply annoying, uh, why they're kept around, right? Because they're not gonna they're not gonna scare off the ladies because there aren't any. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying that this is a good way to operate. What I am saying is that uh, the main thing that Ray really uses his money for, other than, you know, uh, amusing uh, jokes, you know, punchlines like buying Keith Moon's head in a jar, mm-hmm. is setting up this kind of utopia out of his household for dudes that they can wander in and out of. Right, it's not it's not a commune. They're not all living there, though. Roast beef does live there for a while, mm-hmm. um, and he just kind of you know he sets up these big parties. Sometimes there's themes, and uh, everybody's just kind of chilling and enjoying enjoying kind of being lonely together, is how I see it. Yeah, it's you. I mean, you and I come from you know the the you know the the liberal slash what well, we live in the liberal slash puritan northeast mm-hmm. you know, new england where there is always i i think that sense of well one generally th- there's a a sort of i guess to the extent either of us are, are bourgeois that sense of striving that sense of building a career quote unquote or mm-hmm. a family or things like that yes things that are ta- things that are taken as read as these will be values that you relate to in some way. Uh, and also as, you know, being organizers as we are, we, we do put mm-hmm. something of a premium on creating inclusive spaces with, mm-hmm. you know, recognizable mores. Two, two elements which I'd say aren't 
universal throughout American middle class culture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, particularly so in suburbs like Palo Alto, which border on a couple of major, you know, global metropolises, but aren't inherently, you know, metropolitan centers themselves. Mm-hmm. And so as a sort of liminal space are going to attract all types. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, I, we both have, I'm sure, have been to parties where there's a mix of types who we could, you know, if not one for one match categorizes like this is the, you know, this this guy's closer to the Lyle of the mm. group. This is something of the this is something of the Theodore. This is kind mm-hmm. of the elder statesman Cornelius, etc. Uh, it is, of course, weird. To, it, it's weird to be at one of those parties with absolutely zero women or people who identify as things other than dudes around. Mm. So I think you've hit on something there. Like, yeah, if the if you know the sort of st- uh, cisgender mostly hetero male middle class ego is given reign to you know just sort of wallow in itself what what does it produce mm. the answer is thir- 34 ibos and a a bottle of of ancient situation yeah 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 and it's the you know it, it kind of goes into a larger problem of how do you actually pitch Akewood without just making somebody read several or possibly several dozen strips. I don't think I'm necessarily selling what Ray offers, what the dude, what like the depressed dude's utopia of Akewood is, right? Yeah. Because when you say all that, what I think of is like, oh, they're just going to do a Fox News. They're going to form the Proud Boys. But <laughs> obviously, that's not what they're doing. Among other yeah. things, this was, ha- you know, eight, for the most part, Onstad was writing during a much I mean, it should have been more politically fraught, right? He was writing at the height of the war on terror and eventually the 2008 financial collapse and whatever else, but generally considered to be, you could kind of get away more with being an artist who didn't have that much to say about that kind of thing. And to be clear, I, I'm fine with that. I don't think Akewood needs to uh, take a stance on all the issues of the day, but you could create this kind of uh utopia and, and i mean utopian in kind of the true sense of being a no space yeah uh you know uh not not a perfect society but uh it does it does exist outside of time and place in certain ways like none of the in a way that uh in a way that a lot of long-running web comics do like it, it with the exception of those that do focus specifically on careers and personal responsibilities you 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 can find a lot of long-running web comics where you don't really get a sense of what people do for a living or you know how they keep a roof over their heads they're just going back and forth to each other's houses or or favorite hangouts and engaging in situations mm. so yeah it is it it distills down you know the the art of chilling as it were, to its its purest essence, in that you have, as you say, the independently wealthy Ray who can just finance parties or situations for people, and people who drift in and out of his orbit, as you know, as I think happens in any large population with one charismatic figure of means. Mm. What it, it it reminds me of a of a quote from Borges. This is from uh, when he's describing the beliefs of a heretical Islamic sect 
this is from Hakim, the Mass Dyer of Merv, which is in his kind of his first published collect published collection of series, uh, Universal History of Inequity. So he's describing what paradise was like within the um within the belief system of these Muslim heretics. Uh it is always night in their fountains of stone, and the happiness of that paradise is the special happiness of farewells, of renunciation, and of those who know that they are sleeping. So that's not exactly what Ray's parties are like, but I do think uh it is it is a kind of special happiness of dudes who know their limitations know that they don't entirely they aren't entirely where they quote unquote should be and i think the renunciation part is part of it i'm glad you brought this up in that they have they haven't dropped out of society they're not rebelling they're not refusing to take part in society pat is to a certain extent but he's almost more social as a consequence these are dudes who just, but they have more or less given up on uh, reprodu- reproducing themselves. None yeah. of them have kids. Uh, most of them don't have wives or girlfriends. And they've given up on like a particularly generative career, right? To the extent that you see them working jobs, uh, you know, Ray, uh, sorry, Roast Beef occasionally works like tech gigs. He's supposedly a brilliant programmer. Uh, Theodore does the kind of odd jobs that I think Onstead used to do things like copywriting. Uh, Lyle uh, works in kitchens. Uh, Todd just steals. Wrote, um, I, I believe uh, Cornelius lives off of the residuals from his children's books, right? And he's, he's supposed to be the oldest of the bunch, and he never had kids. And in a few places, he says, I never wanted kids. Yeah. Um so the idea, and this comes up in Borges a few times too, these sects that believe that uh, the two the two most abominable things are uh, mirrors and procreation, for they multiply the number of men. Uh, and and these guys, they're not, you know, they're not like I say, abandoning society or adopting like special esoteric beliefs, but. I think there is a gentle acceptance of that rather than what we usually think of, of men accepting their own superfluousness, which turns into them uh, doing something terribly violent. Yeah. There's, it's a, if we, if we tie it back into Aquid as a meditation on consumer culture, it's, it's a, a gentle bemused acceptance of consumer culture. Mm. Like if, if this, if, they they know that there's more to life than this. They don't feel necessarily compelled to go out and pursue it. Yeah. They they know, or at least the smarter among them know that you know the consumer culture, just the art of chilling, is at least somewhat ridiculous. They don't feel incensed by it. They you know they're they're still. I, I guess I guess the unexamined life is friggin' sweet, for lack of yeah. a better. Yeah, and when you examine, and sometimes they do, you know, they can come up with poignant things, but it's usually pretty sad, right? Uh, yeah, there's there, there's always that bittersweet wistfulness to it. Yeah, to to tie it in a little bit with Harris's vision of California, you know, he wasn't he certainly has been the first to point out 
but he's quite right to point out that California was kind of the end of the line. California was where if if your dreams as, you know, a white settler weren't going to come true there, they're not going to come true anywhere. <laughs> um, and they were supposed to come true for whatever American white people were going to come around. And arguably, Ray, for instance, has achieved a kind of California utopia. The others, other than that kind of depressed dude utopia, the, you know, the utopia of renunciation, the art of chilling, haven't, uh, have not achieved whatever it is, you know, uh, David Starr, Jordan, or uh, the founders of the kind of California dream, the guys who chopped up the valleys and took it from the Mexicans and what have you. Yeah. Uh, were, the founders of Stanford. The founders of Stanford, yes, exactly. Um, wanted people, wanted their ideal white Californians uh, to be like. And... I do think that that's a special kind of California vibe. Mm -hmm. I do think that this kind of dual rejection and acceptance of the utopianism, right? Yes, California is the end of the line. Yes, we are the ones who are figuring out what the now and the future looks like, whereas the East Coast and the South and what have you are still mired in the past and these attachments to these other ways of doing things. But whether it's going to look like uh, what any prescribed way of looking, um, California has kind of a hard, California doesn't do that as much. A lot of people making prescriptions, but nobody really making them stick the way the Puritan fathers could in New England or the slaveholders in the South or what have you. Um, yeah, it, and, is, it is sort of a cultural skunk works in mm, addition to, you know, with its, it as... You know, you talk about Harris and Palo Alto and uh, sort of the, the military-industrial complex mm. that built itself up in the Cold War. A little, a, an actual uh, industrial skunk works in some right. cases. But it is sort of the, the skunk works, the, the, the petri dish of various cultural and technological ideas that would then filter out to the rest of American yes. culture in the 20th century. Yes. But I, I guess Amstead sort of draws our attention back it's like yes but once we've scraped the penicillin out what's what's going on in the petri dish what's, what's right happening there and you see like parts of he doesn't like all of this takes place within the context of the tech economy um of its recession during the early parts adjacent to the uh, tech bubble bursting and its eventual accession it doesn't talk that much directly about it but everyone involved it's assumed has some interest in this stuff or uh, if they don't have a direct interest in it, they're uh, attempting to kind of bottom feed off the people who do. So even Todd, the, you know, cracked out squirrel is trying to get VC funding for his cell phone balls, um, <laughs> you know, and uh, particularly there's some interesting stuff with like early computers in early internet uh, in that you get references to things like the well, uh, one of the first uh, online forums attached actually to the whole earth catalog, uh, which was a big uh, counterculture into cyber culture uh, inspiration, right? Stuff about homesteading, stuff about how to create your own commune, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you have that whole kind of interaction between the cyber culture and the counterculture going on in the background, 
people aren't usually direct participants, but they're in where it came from, and it's relatively accessible to them from an early age, right? Like Roast Beef starts playing around with computers pretty early, and he presumably would have had that opportunity in no small part because he was growing, even though he grew up poor, he was growing up in Palo Alto. Uh, So he could, he had access that say a poor kid, maybe in like, uh, you know, West Virginia might not have. Um, So I think that's a really interesting way to uh, get across the regional identity of the place and kind of nod to its history without hitting you over the head with it. Onstad very rarely hits you over the head with things. It happens, but not all the time. Yeah, I, I struggle I struggle to think of examples, but yeah, he's he's pretty he's pretty circumspect. Yeah. Um and also just in terms of depictions of uh depression, particularly of a depression that uh isn't operatic, right? It's not um and I'm not trying to poo-poo anyone's experience of depression. It's not Kurt Cobain's depression, it's not um Elizabeth Wurzel's depression. Uh, possibly one of the the there's a many good depictions of it mostly uh, involving roast beef and Theodore uh, who kind of are most directly affected by it but there's a part where uh, there's a strip in 2007 where the little boy character Philippe goes to Theodore and he says Theodore what does it mean that roast beef has depression and Theodore responds it means he has trouble doing things like going to the grocery store and Theodore and, and uh, Philippe being five says, but that's silly. Going to the grocery store is easy. You just walk right in and there you are. Not if you have depression, says Theodore. And Philippe says, oh, I see. And he just imagines uh, roast beef getting out of his Ford Galaxy, looking at the handy right, and just the face that Onstad draws. You know, he doesn't get as much credit for his drawing, his artistry as he does for uh for his words for his writing but this is a pretty simple and stark and kind of chilling uh panel of roast beef just sort of looking at the handy right and realizing he can't go in he's too depressed to enter a grocery store getting back in the galaxy and driving away and then two of the other kind of depressed dudes in the posse uh these kind of minor characters see him and you know they just hang their heads yeah. Uh, describing they, it's probably go ahead they recognize the battle yeah and it's like all right you know i get that uh that's that's a way to kind of depict depression that doesn't glamorize it that doesn't um catastrophize it necessarily but just kind of sees it for at least how i experienced it i think how a lot of people experienced it no it's it's the and uh, and i can own up to yeah having gone through that as well it's the it's the archetypal life of quiet desperation to to borrow the the famous line there it's not it's not operatic as you say but it's a it's a persistent lack of lack of affect lack of uh uh or right if i'm using the term correctly just the the inability to to take pleasure in or find motivation in uh, in things, which is keenly felt in a place like Palo Alto slash Akewood, which 
you know, at the, even even coming down from the dot-com bubble up until the credit crisis was surrounded by things. Mm. There were, you, you, were, you were surrounded by things you could buy or do or go to or experiences to have, like chain restaurants or mini golf or, you know, big fancy vacations. And so it, it can be particularly keenly felt to see other people enjoying these things and not be able to partake in them yourself. Mm. One of, I think one of the ones that resonates with a lot of people, certainly with me, is when Roast Beef gets a shirt from Molly. Mm. This is early in their courtship. And he puts it on and, and likes it and, you know, is checking himself out. And then very inexplicably but vividly imagines his friends judging him for putting on airs or maybe not even anything that explicit, but just like, who he, who do you think you are wearing a shirt like that? <laughs> and the final panel is him like digging a hole in the backyard mm. to bury the shirt in shame. Just that, that inability to, you know, it, it it's a, the shirt as depicted is a nice-ish, but not opulent. Oh yeah. Two button polo. Mm -hmm. And it looks, it looks good on him again, as, as you said, Onstad is a, is a good enough artist at, depicting these things with simple lines but roast beef is just unable to enjoy a simple possession like that uh without without examination or without you know leaping to these entirely imagined but very vivid flights of fear mm. yeah i mean you know the kind of concept of depressive realism that uh particularly roast beef's form of depression i would say more than theodore's is the kind that is constantly looking forward to doom like not looking forward to it not wanting it to happen but he sees the end of the waterfall that is indeed the fate of all terrestrial life it's just there's a lot of as john dolan put it a lot of territory actually between your canoe and the waterfall and there's stuff you could do yeah. uh uh so yeah you know, pretty, pretty amazing depiction of depression. Mm -hmm. Um, we've been talking for a while. I figure, you know, I know you've got stuff to do. I might let you go, or I, I, I should let you go. Uh, is there any sort of parting thoughts on Aikwood that you you would like to impart on us? Uh, I, I guess I can I can touch briefly at the at the very end about about you know about nine eleven. As we mm. as we always have to do, every every work of art after nine eleven is is about nine eleven mm. in that it's either referencing it or it's not referencing it very closely. I'm exaggerating a little, but as you mentioned, Akewood was started about a month after September eleventh, and for for listeners who you may or may not remember that period, America was still very much on a war footing at mm. that time. Like every aspect of culture had to address it in some way so it's i don't know that onset has ever talked about this explicitly but you know we're both critics we can both partake in death of the author mm -hmm. uh, it's it's impossible that it wasn't somewhere in his mind when he sat down in uh, I, I, october 2001 decided okay now's the time for me to make a webcomic so i always i always think of this work in conversation with if not a reaction to a very famous Time magazine article from only a couple of weeks after September 11th, mm. declaring that irony is dead. 
now that you know the World Trade Center has come down. It's like, oh, you know, we can't, uh, we we can't be ironic anymore. Like it's it's we're living in too real of a time to be ironic. And Akewood, I would say, and I, I think we've we both agree on we might both agree on this is not it's not particularly ironic. It's not sitting back from the material it examines in a sort of smug judgment or knowing judgment it is very absurd Mm. it does dwell a lot in the absurd and i think especially if you look at the earliest strips like the the fall of 2001 and you're trying to make sense of them especially once you know where akewood ends up that's the through line it's a sort of reveling in the absurdity of the commonplace of Mm -hmm. the everyday and I don't know, you might, someone might go so far as to say, like, it's almost a refuge from the the heightened global geopolitical tensions of the time. It's like, no, mm-hmm. let's narrow our focus to the absurdity of, of the everyday. Uh, that's that's farther than I'm willing to psychoanalyze. Mm. But I I think the, the absurdity that has been a through line in the comics at this point, intermittent 20-year history, is is based on that yeah i think i think that's a pretty good analysis i think if you look at it next to other historical events uh he did deal with the 2008 crash pretty concretely in a few episodes uh but one thing he didn't it's worth uh to kind of the the other side of that is so it begins in 2001 and it ended for or at least briefly it ended for a number of years in 2016 yeah uh another sort of important historical year in in which he had more or less nothing to say about the rise of trump trump actually i wrote a little facebook essay once uh about how trump comes up in akewood and when and it's mostly uh ray sort of admiring uh trump's wealth and shamelessness in a few instances and Theodore and some of the others uh, calling him a corny douchebag. But it's an artifact of the time when Trump was a uh, celebrity. I mean, he still is, but really purely a celebrity to the extent he was a political figure. Uh, His politics were either unknown or kind of all over the map. And it was you could also say it was a, of a time when you could pretend that celebrity and politics didn't have much to do with each other. Right. Um, so yeah. at the, yeah, at the time. So I was, I was writing for the, the pop culture website overthinking it and it's uh, sidebar. A lot of my, my notes on Akewood, uh, the things I've observed here, I've cribbed from an article that I wrote on Akewood in about mm-hmm. 2011 uh, at the time, so I, I'm, I, I have been going off of Cliff's notes, but one of the last things I wrote for for overthinking it was sort of the the inability of comedy, you know, sort of mass produced comedy to deal with the rise of Trump, mm. you know, the sort of the, the sort of Daily Show slash SNL mocking of political figures through which a lot of people were interpreting political trends of the time and the the inability of comedy to really to really deal with that and uh, you know a onstat wasn't a figure at that level but i i think that's that's a reasonable assessment that 
you know, his, the lens he had at the time didn't didn't enable him to make sense of it. And you know, like a lot of like a lot of writers and a lot of comedians, he you know took a step back. Yeah, and you know, I think that's a perfectly appropriate thing for people to do. I don't think you should feel obliged to do it. I don't think uh, you should feel obliged to not do that. I mean, a, lo a lot of the takes that came out in those first couple of weeks by people who did feel obliged to do it uh, are best best left to the dustbin of history. So yeah. So um, with that, uh, is there anything? Is there any uh, artifacts that we shouldn't leave in the dustbin that you're producing that uh, listeners of this podcast should go read or listen to or watch? Well, I'm, I'm flattered. Thank you. I do have a I do have a Substack. That you can find at uh, disparagingtheboot.substack.com. Yeah, it is yeah. Uh, it, like like Onstat's later years. It is getting intermittently updated at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, li like Onstat, and this is the furthest to which I I would hope to compare myself. It's it, dealing with the absurdity of the present day with gentle humor yet some seriousness and a, uh, I think a healthy dose of self-deprecation. Yeah, all right. Well, I'll link to that in the show notes. We'll link to Akewood, maybe to some of the, maybe not to every strip that I refer to, that we refer to here, because that might be long. But in any event, uh, thanks for coming on, John. Great episode. Uh, I, I, I really appreciate it. And everybody, uh, have a good one. See you next time. Bye-bye.